0: There once was a minister who loved nothing more than relaxing on a Sunday afternoon playing a round of golf. However, to maintain his reputation and ensure peace and quiet for that day, he would deceive his family, friends, and congregation by telling them he was going out to to do charity for that afternoon and and staying playing golf. So that Sunday, he waved goodbye to his friends and his family, and he took off thinking that he was going to serve the poor. He goes off to play a leisurely round of golf. Well, a few months into this thing, the angels go to God and go, what in the world? Look at all of this deception. What do we do about this to confront the man? And God pauses for a moment, thinks, and says, let me take care of this. The next Sunday, uh, the minister waves goodbye to, to the congregation and going off to serve the poor. But he gets to the first hole, 425 yards, hits that ball into the air, and God sends that ball right into the hole, hole in one. Next hole, hole in one. Third, hole in one. By the sixth hole, the angels in our incredible disbelief, they're going, God, what are you doing? You're giving him the best round of golf in history. God says yes, but let me ask you this. Who's he going to share it with? This parable has loads of layers. We could spend all day talking about uh, all of the ways in which this can challenge us, but one of the clearest ways is built within our constitution, how we're wired, how we're made, is this desire for and this need for relationship. In the very beginning, God says, it is not good for man to live alone. Relationships determine the quality and the direction of our lives. What oftentimes I find, though, is even an NFL team, take, for instance, my pathetic Chicago Bears, will plan more in a given week against their opponent that Sunday than we spend our entire years Reflecting on the relationships that God has given us: our marriages, our families, uh, broken relationships, how we address conflict, our coworkers, oftentimes even how to, how to reach out and love those who don't know the Lord. So today, what I want to do is each of our campus pastors, as we close out this New year's series, are going to reflect upon and talk about how do they work the plan when it comes to the various spheres of relationships. That we find ourselves in.
1: My family and I just got back from Disney World. Of course, it was amazing. The rides were great, the shows were top notch, even the food was pretty good. But there was one other thing that took the trip over the top it was the way my family worked together. Jen, my wife, well, she was in charge of research. She knew where we needed to be and when we needed to be there. I was all about the execution, carrying the supplies, grabbing the fast passes, checking on the ride wait times. And my kids, well, they had to suffer through a super long car ride. They had to walk about 10 miles every day through all the parks. And uh, they had to enjoy pretty much everything we did. They did a great job. It was by far our best family vacation ever. There was something about the fact that we all contributed to this experience that made it that much better. And so the question that naturally followed in my mind was how can I get this feeling of cooperation and contribution to last beyond just this one vacation? How can I see my family work together like this throughout 2014? Well, one of the very few references about the family that the Bible makes Paul in Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I know that word submit is loaded because of the poor way men have used this passage in the past, but here it's actually Paul's introduction for the best way families can navigate through life together. In order for families, in order for our families to work in the way they were always meant to We need to submit to one another. We need to put aside our own desire. We need to lay down the authority that we have a tendency to grab onto and serve. But what does this look like in real terms? Pastor and author Andy Stanley recently defined this concept with one simple question. What can I do to help? What can I do to help The truth is, is that everyone wants their family interactions to go better, but we forget that the standard methods that we have a tendency to use in getting there, nagging, lecturing, or even ignoring, don't get us where we really wanna go. In family relationships, we need to ask, how can I contribute before we ask, what's in it for me? But this is so hard to do, asking our spouse, or parents, or kids, what can I do to help means I give up my rights. It means I might be imposed upon. That's why the second half of Paul's statement is so important. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We serve not because it's guaranteed to work. We serve not because they even deserve it. The reason we serve is because we were the ones who were served first. Jesus, seeing our broken relationship with God, asked his father, what can I do to help? His contribution changed everything. If Jesus, the one who had every reason to demand his rights so freely gave them up, how can we, the ones who so greatly benefited from his act, hold on to ours? But here's the really cool part. This does work. You can try it out yourself. Chances are the family member that you ask will be so surprised. They probably won't have anything to give you at first. It may be a little confusing. It may not work so well the first or the second or even the third time you ask this question. But little by little, as you lead the way in in serving, you're going to find not only will your family needs be met but your needs will be met along with them. What can I do to help? It's one simple question that you can add as you work the plan this year and see how it changes your family dynamics for the better in 2014.
2: Whether you've been married six weeks or 60 years, there's more to marriage than just having the ultimate wedding. My marriage is so life-giving, it's so full of joy, it is so fun, And we just have a blast together, my wife and I. But I also know the reality is is that marriage is difficult, it's hard, it's fickle, and it it requires maintenance. It's a relationship that requires us to take a look at it, and it requires a plan. You know, we've been to a lot of marriages um, and marriage ceremonies. We've been to a lot of church weddings, all of that. And, you know, we've heard a lot of scriptures on marriage. But there's one verse, just to drop a simple verse to us, here today and this verse is this is found in Hebrews 13:4. Just going to keep it simple. It says honor marriage and guard the sacredness of intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's the message version of Hebrews 13:4. I love what NIV says. It says marriage should be honored by everyone. You know, and that's the responsibility that we have. This verse is for everybody that's hearing this today is that marriage is for everyone. It should be honored by all, no matter if you're single or if you're in a relationship or if you're married right now, your spiritual responsibility is to honor marriage. So how do we work the plan of having a valuable, precious, honoring, loving, life-giving marriage? Well, I think there's four things that we could do today and I wanna tell you those four. One of them, the first one is turn moments into memories. Most people don't lead their life, they simply accept their life they wait for memorable experiences to happen they never give a thought to actually creating an experience or creating a memory some of the best memories that you that you will have will come from creating them memories don't find us we find them and we can do that we can be intentional with that especially in our relationships specifically marriages by being spontaneous that's so important to plan plan a night that's unexpected with that special someone bring them flowers just because Even spontaneous intimacy is so important to have healthy marriage. Take advantage of built-in holidays. Birthdays aren't, shouldn't be something that should just be uh, uh, just thrown together. At at our house, we have the five day, we take five whole days to celebrate that birthday because it's a life that God has given to us and we want to celebrate that life. Take advantage of holidays. Holidays should not be an afterthought. They should actually be intentional and make it full of surprises. The second thing you can do is you can master the art of apologizing. Just as romantic love is essential for having a healthy marriage and healthy relationship, so is having a forgiving love in a marriage. Jesus modeled this forgiving love we see all over the scriptures in the New Testament. And we have the opportunity to show that exact same love to our spouse and that significant other in our life. Having disagreements are going to happen. And we have to remember this, it's not about proving we're right but it's about bringing reconciliation. It's less about being understood and it's more about trying to understand. Number three is this, become a soulmate. We become so focused so much on trying to find our soulmate that we forget the most important thing which is this, become a soulmate. Instead of putting all our energy into finding and keeping the right person, What if we took our energy and focused in the direction of becoming the right person? Who we are spiritually is so important, the care of our soul is so important to our relationships. My personal devotional life, my personal prayer time, my personal Bible reading, how I'm in the presence of God will affect my spouse and those around me. Not only my own soul, but I should be aware of the soul of my spouse, the soul of that other person. I should be able to ask them and have an honesty in our relationship to say, how are you doing spiritually? What do you need? How can I pray for you? How can I bless you? That's the characteristic of becoming a good soulmate. And finally, practice the once principle. Every marriage starts out good, but it'll eventually bump into bad. No matter how good your marriage is, it's not invulnerable. So it's important important to be intentional with your relationships, that you'll, so that you can stay together. When the business of life tries to pull you apart, it's important to stay together. You can do it this way, once a day. It's important to laugh. It's important to spend that time with your spouse. We love to do spontaneous dancing at our house, and anybody can do the robot, even you. So have fun and laugh. Once a week, do something active that lifts your spirits together. Boost your partner's self-esteem, and, 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 and ask them, and, just, and encourage them. Do what it takes. Once a month, rid yourself of harmful things that you can recognize in your marriage that is, that's hurting your relationship. Once a month, fire up the passion in the bedroom. I don't even need to say more about that. And finally, once a year, review your top 10 highlights of the year in your marriage and chart the course for the coming year because that's so important. This should become your ultimate to-do list at home. So as you pursue marriage, do this. Turn moments into memories, master the art of apologizing, become a soulmate, and finally practice that principle of wants. And in just a few ways, these are just a few
3: ways on how you can work the plan. When you think about your work, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You think about the traffic getting there and back? Do you think about the task list or the deadlines? Or maybe you're a stay home parent, you think about your kids running around in your house trying to destroy it? Or do you think about relationships? One of the things that amazes me about Jesus is how relational he was as he worked the plan that God had set for him. If we're not careful in reading the scriptures, we forget this really key component about Jesus and his relationships. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And being fully God, he knew everyone's story that he encountered or met. We see it in scriptures where Nathaniel, he speaks to him and says, I saw you sitting under that fig tree, before I found you. And Nathaniel gives up everything and follows Jesus. We see it again when Jesus with the woman at the well, and he tells her her entire marital history without ever meeting her. And she runs off in her town and says, I have met the Messiah. Jesus was so key with everything he said or did. He knew he had to tell the rich young ruler to give up all of his riches because that was the only way he would follow him. He knew he had to act. And, and healing people, not only physically, but he knew he had to connect emotionally and into community and language. Is anyone here today all knowing like Jesus? No, right? i ask you another question. When have you taken time to listen to a coworker's story? or Maybe another stay-home mother. It's hard, isn't it? We live in a culture that's all about self-promotion. It's all about making ourselves comfortable. And if we're not careful, we miss the point. On Sunday evenings, I had an amazing opportunity to get together with some middle school and high school students as we study the scriptures together. And one of the things we read last week, I felt like the Holy Spirit was all over it and he was speaking something. I wanted to share it with you today. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And Paul is writing this to the Philippian church from a jail cell. And he's saying our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And wasn't Jesus completely selfless? Didn't he lead that example for us? And isn't it true that we trust Jesus because of his selflessness and he knows us. He knows our story. We see the early church living endurance selflessness. We read in the book of Acts, they did a couple of things extremely well. It says they met together, they had community to one another they shared food they shared all they had and they prayed for each other they spoke the identity of Christ to each other they reminded each other what the mission was and who God was they devoted themselves to prayer and to the scriptures and last but not least they were receptive to the power of the Holy Spirit and they were able to get their needs met by God and when we get our needs met by God we can act selfless selflessly into our workplaces we can carry that into our everyday life but guess what that's a it's a hard road to travel and it's difficult and i'm gonna tell you right now you're probably gonna fail it's not an if it's a when and but the grace in that is this is sometimes when we fail when we act selfish it sets us up some of the greatest opportunities to be an influence how We get to approach people and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I wanna make this right. And what I found in my own journey is those moments are sometimes the moments that people remember me the most. I could succeed many times, but the times I fail, sometimes people remember how I responded when I messed up. So let's go from this place today. Let's go in that grace. Let's go with the power of the Holy Spirit. As we listen to people's stories, as they start to trust us, it creates a platform of influence for people to see Jesus. And that is working the plan in our lives.
4: One of my favorite old time Southern preachers used to always say in his Southern accent, unforgiveness is like an acid that eats its own container. So do yourself a favor and forgive. Now my accent is horrible, my impersonation is horrible, but the fact remains that unforgiveness is something that affects us more than anybody else. The best favor, the best thing you can do for yourself is to allow forgiveness into your life. Now this is a topic that we've discussed and talked about over and over. We've all heard a million different sermons on it. Um, but I just want to throw a scripture out and it's actually found in two different places. Um, but I want to identify Ephesians four, uh, verse 32. And it simply says this, forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. Uh, We find it again in Colossians 3, 13, it's almost verbatim. Forgiveness is something that we do to be like Christ. What's neat is that forgiveness is a gift that you can give to yourself. One of the biggest hindrances to present relationships, to relationships that you are in right now, and to experiencing the fullness of that relationship is oftentimes unforgiveness and the effect that it has because of anger from dealing with those hurts and also because of fear that those hurts are going to happen again. I just want to throw two quick thoughts out Uh, maybe get you to think about these things a little differently. The first one is the fact that forgiveness is a choice. Now, when you first hear that, you think, that's not that different. But uh, we have to understand that forgiveness is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's something that we will to do, that we decide to do. I don't know how many times I've talked to people about forgiveness, and they've said, I'm just not ready See, that doesn't matter. Forgiveness has nothing to do with being ready to do it, and it has everything to do with choosing to do it. There's no doubt in any of our minds that Jesus was not feeling like he wanted to go to the cross but he made a choice, a choice that was a once and for all choice that had ramifications forever going forward. That's what forgiveness does in your life. When you choose to forgive, it has consequences that are beneficial to your life from the moment that you decide going forward. It doesn't matter if you're ready. I challenge you this year, 2014, to make that choice. First of all, The second thing that we must understand in the area of forgiveness is that forgiveness is agreeing to live with the consequences of what happened to you. This is one that kind of hurts. And it's one that a lot of times we push back on because we don't want to do that. Uh, But forgiveness is accepting those consequences in your life and saying, I accept that I have to live with those consequences. Here's the, here's the thing. Whether you accept it or not has no effect on whether or not those consequences are bearing fruit in your life or are, 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 uh, having an effect on your life is a better way of saying it. If somebody attacks you and cuts your face with a knife, there's going to be a scar on your face. Whether you acknowledge that there's a scar there or not, the effect of that hurt will always be there. Well, the same is true with us emotionally, and even mentally. Those consequences are there. So so then why do we accept the fact that those consequences are there? The reason is because once you accept them, then you can identify them, then you can call them out when they come up, and you can submit them to Christ and be independent, make decisions independent of those things. For instance, if you're in a, a present relationship and a fear comes up because of an interaction with that person, a fear comes up from a past uh, relationship And you acknowledge that fear, you can call that thing out, you can identify it, and then you can independently make decisions on how you're going to move forward. Same thing with anger. Anger from a past that comes up in a present relationship, you can identify that anger, you can make decisions independent from that, and it can free you in your present relationships to be able to move forward, to be able to make decisions in Christ and not because of those things. Unforgiveness is like an acid that eats its own container. Do yourself a favor in 2014. Do yourself a favor, not anybody else, yourself,
5: and forgive. You know, I think it's kind of ironic that the former football player gets to talk about conflict. It is something that I actually love and embrace. Um, And it's not because I used to hit people for a living, even though I really enjoyed that. But the truth is, um, I really enjoy conflict, and I don't think it's uh, a negative thing, even though most people view it that way. And that's how our dictionaries define it. But the truth is, it's not. In all honesty, it just means to be on the opposite side of an idea, an interest, or an issue. But we tend to view conflict negatively For a couple of reasons either a we didn't grow up seeing conflict modeled for us well in our home and in our environments or b we experienced some wounding or some sort of hurt as a result of conflict in our formative years but i'm so glad that we have the bible uh, as instructions for here on earth because uh, the bible addresses everything that we go through including conflict Including conflict in our relationships. You know, this year I've started out in the book of James, and in the book of James, he addresses conflict actually a couple of times. Uh, In chapter four, he asks a couple of questions. He says, What causes fights or conflict among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That pretty much sums up why we have conflict and why we fight amongst each other. We either have something going on inside of us or we have an unmet need or desire. So we go on the attack or we go into retaliation mode to try to get that need or that desire met. I think in James one, he gives us a very um, simple game plan to execute as it relates to conflict in our relationships, but it's not so easily executed. Especially in the heat of the moment. Listen to what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, what does that really mean? Because most of us in the heat of the moment don't react that way. As a matter of fact, we probably react in the opposite way. We probably get mad very quickly, we probably speak before we should. Or maybe we have the tendency to just hold in and not speak at all, and then we're definitely not hearing the way that we should hear. But I want to give you some practical ways to approach this from one of my favorite authors, Patrick Lencioni. In his best-selling book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he talks specifically about conflict. And in his workbook, he gives two suggestions that I want to give to you today as it relates to uh, handling conflict. Number one... He says on a scale of one to 10, find out how comfortable the people you work with, the people on your teams, the people that you um, are in relationship with, find out how comfortable they are with conflict. With a one being uh, not very comfortable at all and 10 being very comfortable. The reason for this is because it helps you to figure out uh, how to engage and what intensity to engage. This is important because the wrong intensity doesn't produce or help you produce the the result that you would like to get to or help the person hear what you're trying to say. Secondly, he says, define the rules of engagement. Now that seems pretty simple, but think about it. In sports like boxing and even football, there are rules of engagement, rules that are in place to keep the game fair and to keep people safe. So why not define the rules of engagement as it relates to conflict in our relationships? Why not predetermine these things? What things are you going to say? What things are you not going to say? Um, how are you going to uh, create a space where you can talk about some very difficult things? So tying it back to what James suggests, it's hard to be here, uh, quick to hear if you're not on the same page or you're not in tune with the people that you're in conflict with. It's just like a conductor or a composer who hears music differently because they're in tune with the music. You have to be in tune with who you're working with and and the people in your environment. Um, And when you are able to do that, you can hear differently and you can respond differently. And when you respond differently, you give yourself an opportunity to lessen the chance that there uh, will be anger. Now, let's Stick to the plan this year that James 1 has laid out for us. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because it's not about being right, it's about being in right relationship.
6: A lawyer came along to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. And he asked him, what is the greatest commandment in this entire book? And Jesus, without hesitation, said this. He said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. The reason that you have breath is to love God and to be loved by him. The reason that you exist is to love your neighbor. Now, the lawyer asks a great follow-up question in Luke chapter 10. He says this, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus starts into a story about a man who was on the road to Jericho and was beaten and robbed and left on the side for death. And a priest comes along, he sees this man, and he just keeps walking by him. Then a Levite comes along, he sees the man, he just keeps walking. And then a Samaritan comes along, the very enemy of the Jew in the ditch. He sees him, he picks him up, he takes him to an inn. He cares for him, he pays for him, and he restores him to full healing. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is that distraction. My neighbor is that detour. My neighbor is that person in need. My neighbor is the person that God has placed in my path that takes me outside of my comfort zone. I want to share three quick challenges today that will take us outside of our comfort zone and teach us to love our neighbor. The first thing is this, develop a footprint theology. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says this, it says that everywhere that you step I will give you that land. Now in my neighborhood when we first moved in about 10 years ago, Our next door neighbor was evicted for dealing drugs. Two doors down, uh, the SWAT team actually rammed their door down, chasing down a drug dealer. Then there was a first degree murder charge. Three doors down, uh, a guy showed up with a machete, threatening this guy's life. There was some crazy sauce going on in our neighborhood. We were overwhelmed. But in prayer, we began to seek God and God gave us a simple word. Own it. Don't just go home, close your door and do your thing. No, get out. Walk the neighborhood, pray the neighborhood, get to know the grumpy old man, get to know the guys on the street corners, and when you do, I will show up, and he did show up, and created divine moments. Listen, when you prayer walk, detours are the goal because every detour is a divine intervention, a divine moment that God can use. Number two, give something away. I had a goal a couple of years ago uh, that I wanted to share the gospel every single day for a certain season. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel's not an idea, it's not a way of living, it's not a way of thinking, it's not a philosophy. The gospel is a person, John 1. The word was made flesh and the word dwelt among us. To share the gospel is to share Jesus. Now, Jesus came in different forms to every person. To some he came and he healed, to some he came and he spoke exhortation, to some he encouraged, to some he touched. So to share Jesus is unique in every situation. Now for Nina and I, Nina will bake things for our neighbors. Uh, We'll we'll invite neighbors over for homemade ice cream. I'll shovel their snow. We will share testimony to those who need encouragement. We will pray for those who need healing in a moment of hurt. But every time that we share the gospel, share Jesus, God shows up in those moments. Develop a footprint theology. Uh, Give something away, and number three, go there. Go there. Jesus didn't just walk and pray. In John chapter nine, He was walking along and he healed. In Mark chapter one, he was walking along and he called Peter to a new life. In Luke chapter 24, he was walking along and then he came around the disciples in despair and he encouraged them. Jesus didn't just walk and pray. He walked, he prayed, and then he obeyed. This past week, I was at the gym. And I'll give a quick disclaimer. There are two places in the world where I sometimes lose my salvation. Number one is in the car, I'm sorry if that was you I cut off this morning, forgive me. Number two is at the gym. So I've got to pray it up before I go to the gym. So I'm prayed up, I go, I play ball with this guy. We're in between games. And we're kind of at this surface level conversation. And God prompts me. You know, when you pray for someone, God will always prompt something in you. And God prompts me to go there. So I do. It was crazy, you guys. This past week, his mom was murdered. He was the one who found her murdered. In this moment, man, was able to speak life, to speak encouragement into this guy, to pray healing over him, but realize that, man, unless we develop a footprint theology, give something away, and unless we're willing to go there, divine opportunities, divine moments do not happen unless we're willing to pursue the detour and the distractions. Jesus, he sums it up simply. Love God love your neighbor. Come on, guys, we can do this together. Let's work the plan.
0: As we close, I'm going to invite our worship team to come down as we prepare our hearts for worship one last time. But the writer Paul says in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. Now we, we all know that we can go from a, an appreciation of to a small consumption of to a steady diet of and it starts to affect us. And he continues on in this passage, he says, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That's such a nifty little phrase because notice he doesn't say may the eyes of your brain be enlightened. This is not an intellectual thing and oftentimes I find when I confront a message, I can hear it but oftentimes I don't heed it. I'll hear the truth of it, agree with it, but not change my response to it. So today, as what Paul said before, and I admonish to you today, it says, may you see with the depth of your being in new ways. Perhaps it's your marriage today, and it's like a rainbow death wheel on your computer. It just needs a reboot. Who are... The the relationships that are most important to you that get the least amount of attention. How do you work the plan in conflict and in broken relationships? Who are you walking roads with and who do we need to identify that with? May the eyes of our heart be enlightened today. And may we, above all else, be known by our love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you praise today. We thank you for the way in which we can be challenged to grow in our relationship with you, but most of all, learn to love one another more deeply. Across all locations is a spectrum of relationships, from broken relationships, to conflict that needs to be addressed, to marriages that need to be strengthened. Father, we just pray over each person right now that you would provoke their spirits that seeds would be planted in in hearts. And Lord, I pray as we worship you here in this closing time, that in humility and in a response to this word, you would speak into our hearts and we would respond to what it is we need to do. Father, we give you praise. We worship you in Jesus' name.
5: Amen.